Sand is transformative. It is particles ground down by the passage of time, sifted over beaches and deserts, and awash under rivers, lakes, and oceans. These particles can be reformed, brought back together through heat and industrial processes to form glass. We peer through it as windows, cut ourselves on it as shards, and often forget its sandy origins. Sand is the grounding theme of this episode. Hello and welcome to Canvas, FBI Radio's podcast unframing art and ideas. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which this episode has been researched and recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Aisha Ash. I'm a performer, theatre maker, co-founder of Blackbird's Creative Arts Company, and your guide as we delve into sand, our second episode in the three-part cluster, Stone, Sand and Salt, which are bound together by the overarching theme of ground. These are exceptional times, and we hope you are taking care wherever you are listening right now. This podcast has been recorded from physical distances using digital platforms instead of coming together in the recording studio. Bear with us when the audio quality reflects this at times. At the beginning, we heard a sound recording from the artistic alchemist Koji Ryui. We'll be hearing from him a little later in the episode. First, we go to a chat between Canvas researcher Jazz Money, a poet, filmmaker and educator of Wiradjuri heritage, and Joel Spring, a Wiradjuri man working across activism, architecture and speculative projects. Sand is matter at a point of distinction that is convenient for the person making the decision. How much sand constitutes land? And when is there not enough? Hello, you're at Thumarung. Uh, this is Jazz Money in conversation with my dear friend, countryman, Wiradjuri Mudji, uh, Joel Sherwood Spring. Talking about a sort of foundations of some new works that he's producing, um, where the genesis point is uh, this myth of Sandy Island fabricated by uh, Captain James Cook on one of his illegal passages around the South Pacific. I'm interested in sand because I think it means very different things to very different people um, on this continent. And by no means am I an expert on what sand operates as for hundreds of different clan groups across the widespread coastline of this country. But I think I have a clearer image of the way that sand operates within a Western idea. When James Cook was on his second voyage after arriving on the shore of Botany Bay, off the top of what is now called New Caledonia, in the body of water that kind of sits between or flows between the coast of what is now Queensland. Uh, Captain James Cook on a boat in, I think, September in 1774 um, charted an island that was 28 kilometres long and 5 kilometres wide that he called Sandy Eye or Sandy Island. It's existed and has been redrawn and potentially has had people, other people who have seen it. In 2012, when... Uh, 
the research ship that was in the area went to go check that it was there. They scanned the they scanned the ocean floor as they were moving through the uh, proposed site of the island, and they recognised that there could have never have been a landmass there because the ocean was there was a consistent ocean depth um, that would not allow for any sort of like topography to have been there. So there could have never really have been a landmass in the context of colonialism. The idea of discovery, what that what that implies from whose perspective is something being discovered. Um, Captain Cook would say that he discovered Botany Bay. So I think discovery and in the context of Sandy Island, undiscovery are are inherently connected to a specific viewpoint and and a power structure. And so it, it really made clear to me the kind of the power of, um, not only colonialism, but kind of the the larger systems at play and who gets to who gets to say when something is and isn't there. There's kind of a school of thought that maybe it's just human error. I think it's interesting to think about what like what that means in terms of like kind of colonial histories of classification and, and anthropological kind of exploration and, and ideas. Like it's also such an injustice at times to think about other claims made by colonial expansion or anthropological endeavours retrospectively now to say, oh, that was just human error, when the impacts of those things at those times that are prolonged and continued to this day are, are, are incredibly violent and detrimental. I'm unsatisfied with the idea that it's just human error. I've spoken to some other people, and these are people who are quite interested in sort of histories of navigation and the understanding of like the sort of the technologies that were sort of being created and, and the skill set that people like Captain, Captain James Cook had, and these are predominantly like white historians, would say that he would never have made that sort of mistake. So then it, it kind of begs the question of, well, then what was the intention of the island? What was the intention of, of, of drawing this space? And through its classification of Sandy, I think it forecasts the relationship to sand that we see unfold historically and politically in Australia. That a border or a, or a thick black line on a map can evolve into sort of a mediated space in which sort of political histories of white possessive masculinity play out over, you know, 200 years. This animal, out in the open, pressing down on the sand, grass, bones, the shit of other animals, but no stones. There are no stones here.
This work was made at a place called Parnidus, a mountain of sand on the Coronian Spit, which runs for about 100 kilometres along the Baltic coast of Europe. There are a couple of reasons I went there. One is actually because I wanted to get away from reasons. Ground is a metaphor for reason. So you can say to someone, what are your grounds for that, for thinking that, for doing that? And I had literally no grounds for being there. And the ground actually would move under my feet every moment, every day. So no connections, no history, no reason to be there. The other reason was that it was not here, not anywhere in Australia. A few years ago I realised that I needed to start working with images more explicitly, but I also quickly realised that any image that I made would be interpreted as a landscape. I'm a person of white settler background and I did not want to make anything that would be seen that way. So I went to this mountain of sand, which when I was there for two months in early spring a few years ago, was always in fog. Nothing solid, just damp sand, just fluids, no surfaces, no interiors at all. Just this vague interface between the sand and the fog, mingling into each other. For me it was a place where the usual behaviours and attitudes of interpretation, which we imagine as revealing what is not on the surface, were impossible. It was just not possible to take that approach to meaning here. As for the images themselves, I think of them as more like ghosts. They're barely there. I put a vocal sound in, but they are all what you call the voiceless consonants in English. The air is rushing from inside the body to out, but the vocal folds in your throat don't vibrate. So these are sounds like s and sh, for instance, and also p, t, k. I wanted a slippery, spitty sound with no vowels, stopped in an erratic way by the consonants, other consonants there. All properly formed sounds, phonetically correct, but none of them words as if Parnidas had taken the body's voice away and put in its own instead. That was Joel Spring and Canvas researcher Jazz Money at the top discussing the foundations of some new projects Joel has been delving into, beginning their development from the myth of Sandy Island, which was fabricated by Captain James Cook on one of his passages around the South Pacific. Using this fabricated discovery of a non-existent Sandy Island as a launching point, Joel asks revealing questions. Who gets to say when something is and isn't there? Who gets to claim something as discovered? And what does this reveal about existing colonial power structures? After, we heard a sound excerpt from the video work Sand Fog by Nam-based artist and writer Lynette Smith, filled with spitty sp 
noises that sound as though something is shifting beneath the ground, moving from one form to another, like sand. Koji Ryui joined me next to chat about his artwork, T.O.T., which was exhibited at the Australian Gallery of New South Wales for The National in 2019. Koji is an alchemist of everyday life and materials. He recontextualizes objects with an animist sensibility to create artworks that are minimalist, humorous, and playful. My name is Koji, Koji Ryui, and um, I'm based in Sydney, and I work as a visual artist. I mainly work with three-dimensional objects and installation sculptures, often uh, incorporating found objects. And um, essentially, I aim for creating a space or room that people could come in and explore so that the work is not only presented as objects, but presented as experience. TOT is a installation that I presented at Art Gallery of New South Wales. The work incorporates lots of glass vessels, like wine glass, vases. I just kind of use them as a main sort of um, material to create uh, installation, I suppose. I coated a lot of them using sand to just slightly uh, shift the association or meaning of these uh, objects in the form that I created. Can you tell us a little bit about why you use sand and the significance of, of sand in your work? I suppose, first of all, I like the everywhereness of, of sand. You know, like we all know what, what it's like. We all have played with it. Um, it's very malleable. Again, kids love playing with sand, but also we do have very uncomfortable memory probably of like having sand in your mouth, mm. in, your, in your shoes. I like this kind of immediacy of the material. That was kind of a, a you know, very useful thing for me to incorporate into my work, which often presented as ambiguous and abstract, open-ended propositions. So having something familiar within it allows me to offer a bit of an entry point. You know, talking about an entry point into art for the audience, if, if it's objects that they recognise, because sometimes people can find art so alienating. Um, mm. So it's really nice if there's something that they can recognise and, and even think about yeah. how they can, I mean, obviously not create the type of art that you do so easily, but think about how they can make art with what they have around them too. I mean, in a way, this is what, kids do kids look at whatever that's around them and um somehow look at them not as their functional things as they're presented to them but you know they just kind of just use them for what they are and um in a way i'd like to maintain that kind of playful playful uh, perspective to mm. our surroundings so. and what is the process like for you in choosing the type of sand to work with? How do you choose which sand works best? Initially, I was just using any sand that I could get hold of, say from Bunnings. But then I just started to, you know, recognize the subtle, subtle differences in different sand. And um, also, even if you're buying the same product, depends when you buy them or when these sand are harvested, uh, they appear differently. 
So too much what I liked from one period, I actually had to go and you know um, try to get hold of as many different sand as possible. I probably looked at about 20 different kinds of sand to locate something that I liked. Idea-wise, it has two elements. One is to do with the time. The other is to do with scale. Time relates to the cycle of materials, where again, it is essentially a silica or similar materials that I'm you know, using in the, in the work, either in the form of glass or sand. Sand could be vitrified over time and become a glass-like material, or glass could be crushed into smaller particles and eventually become sand in nature. So I also like this uh, cycle of materials that I could suggest in my work and sense of time that it brings in. Applying sand onto the surface of the object, sort of changing the surface, I was enjoying how it changes its reading or its association. So this, you know, very familiar object like wine glass of vases, if I coat that in sand, it starts to look quite strange. To me, it sort of, you know, starts to look like it could be from some kind of archaeological site being dug up from, you know, being buried for thousands of years. Or possibly it could look like it is from another world or another dystopian future. I usually like to work with the um, overall space or image of the work so that, you know, when you walk into my space, you could somehow see and hopefully appreciate the overall presentation of the space. But then if you enter the space, you are able to go into smaller details and notice something in a more microcosmic level. I like the idea of the sand where you could be looking at sand as a pile of sand sort of material, or you could be looking at a grain of sand in, in smaller scale. I often think of, you know, analogy of, say, um, amount of planets that are in the universe to amount of the sand on a beach, a grain of sand being a planet. And I just kind of um, like analogy of those scale. In a similar way to thinking about our mind, you know, mind is almost like infinite, but we can only um, focus on one thing at a time, like looking at a grain of sand. You've been listening to Canvas, unframing art and ideas through the episode Sand, the second podcast in a three-part series of episodes unfolding within the theme of ground. Stay with us in the coming fortnight for the next episode, Salt, opening dialogues with artists about trade, drought, and connection. You can listen back to past episodes and subscribe for more on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and connect with us via our Instagram at canvas underscore FBI 94.5. Canvas is brought to you by myself, Aisha Ash, researchers Elena Zarowski and Jazz Money, audio editor and producer Kanika Kerpalani, digital coordinator Isabella Sanasi, and executive producer Anna May Kirk. The textural jingle bookending our episodes is by artist and musician Jack DeLacy. 
Thank you to all the artists that have contributed art and ideas to this episode, both in and outside of the podcast. We are releasing lots of supporting info around each episode, including resources, extended interviews and more, so head to fbiradio.com forward slash canvas to dive in. And now we leave you with Bianca Hester reading an excerpt from Sandstone, a book of creative non-fiction based upon situated encounters with Sydney's basin's dominant geologic material. Splitting. In the earliest days of formation, the Earth was split into two bodies. Scientists have analysed data from NASA's Lunar Prospector spacecraft, which supports the theory that the Moon was once a part of the Earth. After the development of Earth's iron core about 30 to 50 million years after the Big Bang, a planet the size of Mars called Thea collided with the Earth at an oblique angle, shattering its body. Debris was strewn into the surrounding space before gravity's slow labour aggregated the fragments into the Moon as we currently know it. The Moon now shares similarities in mineral composition to that of the Earth. In a few hours, you're going to be split into two. She stated this as a fact. The midwife made the comment as she inspected the bloodied amniotic fluid that had accumulated on the surface of a maxi pad that I'd been wearing since 5.30pm. My waters were breaking and there was absolutely no turning back from what was to proceed. The process of splitting had commenced. The implied violence of the statement alarmed me. I hadn't previously thought of this as involving splitting. Logs and rocks get split by metallic edges of axes and chisels. It takes intense effort and energy to divide something seemingly singular into multiple parts. If done by hand, the labour required is readily registered as pain in muscles as the impact of the tool used to split is driven through materials. I'd never heard this description paired with thoughts of flesh before. Surely a cleave such as this is going to elicit some kind of trauma. Thank <laughs> you.